Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Julie, I want to pitch a movie idea to you here. All right, this is a good summer movie. Hold on, hold on. Let me get my cigar and put it in my mouth. All right, go ahead. All right, here's my elevator pitch, all right? All right, the the kids love parasites. They love movies about parasites. Mm -hmm. How about this? Now we do a sequel. We call it Parasite 2, Hyper Parasite. And it's about parasites that prey on parasites. Hmm. Go on, kid. Tell me more about it. Well, it's actually real. <laughs> it's not just an item of science fiction. It sounds like Hyperparasite does sound like it would be the sequel to a parasitic movie. Uh, but it, it comes down to an interesting question. Parasites. All right. There's a simple view of looking at the world of parasites. You have us normal organisms, and then you have the organisms that prey on us. The criminal the, uh, element in the world, right? They're, so to speak. Yeah, they're sucking our blood. They're, uh, they're, they're getting into our cells, all these various uh, heinous acts out there. Are they getting away scot-free? Or are there other parasites that prey on them? And and then how would that work? Do those parasites have parasites as well? So it's kind of like a parasite. This hyperparasite is sort of like Dexter, the serial killer of serial killers, though instead of killing to fulfill a need for, I guess, sating the impulse to destroy and exacting a kind of justice at the same time, these hyperparasites, I'm going to guess, are doing this all for the energy source. Yes. Yeah, it's it, it's easy to sort of, yeah, to, to go to like the Dexter example or like a Robin Hood example or mm-hmm. a Omar little example from The Wire where it's like, all right, these are the thieves, but this guy's thieving from the thief. Uh, these are the serial killers. This guy's killing the serial killers. But uh, but really, when you get get down to it, you really look at the the economy aspect. Of it. We've mm-hmm. talked about this before in cannibalism and animals, where it all comes down to the energy. All right, there's in in nature we have this this ecological pyramid. At the bottom, the very bottom level of the pyramid, you have vegetation that's growing, depending largely upon solar energy. Mm-hmm. And then every level uh, moving up from that bottom level of the pyramid is some sort of organism eating another. You know, something's eating the grass, something's eating that, and something else is eating that, swooping in until at the very top, enthroned on this mountain of bone and flesh, <laughs> you have the apex predators who are just fortunate enough to to be above all of that, at least until they you know get old or break a leg and topple down the pyramid to where a, a, a scavenger can rip them apart. So, I mean, it really comes down, all this comes down to the fact that nature is just this hellish world of competition. And it's all about the economy of energy, the energy required to pass on your genes. And anybody and everybody in this pyramid will eat another one, will steal energy if mm-hmm. they are able to, if there is any opportunity. And that's just the, the brutal truth of it. It's like a it's like some sort of a crime movie where there's like a, a gym or a you know a suitcase full of gold or something and every criminal in the picture is uh, is screwing over the next one to get it until there's just like nobody actually has possession of the, the football anymore. Well it's interesting as, as humans on top of that that uh, heap of bones, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to look at parasites as this, you know, oh, you know, this thing that might be invading me and causing disease, and I'm a host for this. Mm-hmm. I'm at the top. I'm yeah. at the apex. How can this be? And so when you hear about these hyper parasites, this parasite on parasite action going on, you tend to think of them as you say as sort of like these Avengers. Yeah. Um, yes. He's. This, this Robin Hood bacteria is, is on my side. He's going after the thing that's after me, so the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Right, but in fact, 
these hyperparasites are just these sort of brilliant criminal minds because what they're doing is they're looking at uh, these instances in nature in which other parasites are really successful and they're sort of riding on the coattails of this. And as you say, they're going for the big energy leap here. It doesn't have anything to do with avenging the host mm-hmm. uh, of that that the parasite is taking advantage of. Yeah, I mean, it's an old adage that a su- for a successful criminal, their biggest enemy isn't law enforcement but other criminals. You know, if you have like a, a, an amazing grow house uh, operation going, like somewhere in Canada, I was reading articles about. Then you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading articles about this a while back, and um, you know, they, they get to the point where they don't have to worry about, about law enforcement. They've mm-hmm. got that figured out. But it's the it's the other criminals that are going to come and snatch your crops or or steal your money or or something like that. And or and use your underground tunnels. Yes, use your underground tunnels for whatever you use it for. And if you're not smuggling through drugs and money it's just kind of it's annoying sometimes that's all i'm saying um yeah no i mean i kid but this is this uh parasite on parasite examples that we see in nature fascinating stuff and it's very chilling too at the same time can't help but anthropomorphize it um so we're going to take a look at a couple of of examples here in nature all right first up we're going to talk a little about wasps now we've talked about wasps a lot uh, especially parasitic wasps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always talking about them. I, I wrote an article about how wasps work on how stuff works several years ago, and and I can't stop thinking about them ever since. Uh, I, I I hate to kill them even if they're even if they're a nuisance in the house. Because you really respect them, don't I you? I respect them. They're they're brutal, but they're 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 honest in their brutality, and <laughs> uh, you know, and they haven't sold out like the honeybee and taken on this uh, this agrarian lifestyle. They are still out there. Living the life, more or less. Yeah, but the honeybees all like, yeah, everything would collapse without me. Yeah. You guys are just being jerks out there and showing off. Well, all right. Well, that's an argument for another day. Yeah, but, okay. You're right. So let's we, not reignite that. Yeah, let's not reignite the, the bee. I believe we have an episode on that. Bees versus wasps. Mm-hmm. So go back and study that if you, you want more on, on that particular debate. But parasitic wasps. Uh, basically, we're talking about the ultimate deadbeat moms, in a sense. They uh, they don't want to raise that larva. Uh, that raise that egg as their own. So what do they do? They plant it inside another critter. It wakes up inside of its food source, its living food source. They suppress the host's immune system. They control its growth, its metabolism, all for their own benefit. Sometimes they even hijack the host organism, mm-hmm. such as the the, uh, the particular uh, parasitic wasp that we saw where the, the, the larva yeah, takes over the ladybug and makes it its zombie master while mm-hmm. it grows to maturity. Um, but there's even more to that. There are parasitic wasps that are hyperparasitic. Yeah, and it all starts with GLVs. We've talked about this before, which are green leaf volatiles. That's the chemical produced by a leaf that is munched on by a caterpillar, right? Yes. It releases a signal to predators uh, and says, hey, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a caterpillar on me. And he's eating me. Free lunch. I, yeah, it would be great if some uh, some wasps were to come by and plant some larvae inside of this moocher. <laughs> That's right. And so the caterpillar, you know, unbeknownst to it, has limited time here because pretty soon one of two different types of wasps, we're talking about the Cotesia rubicella and the Cotesia glomerata, will heed that call from those GLV chemicals and swoop down on the caterpillar. Now, that's where the stinging and the implanting comes into play. The eggs are deposited. Yeah, using that uh, ovipositor, the, yes. uh, the stinger, which, of course, is an egg-laying organ. Uh, all wasps that are out there stinging, those are female wasps. And so what you have is you have a caterpillar, which is now reduced to the status of a wasp incubator. 
Now, that in itself is sort of ninja level waspery. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's nothing compared to this hyper parasitic wasp that comes into play. Yes, this particular wasp was studied by Eric Pohlman of Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And this uh, particular uh, hyperparasoid, uh, Lizibia nana, or L nana, as we shall henceforth call it. Which I'm now thinking about a nana, like L-nana. this old nana wasp. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in a sense, you know, the, the nana is bringing uh, the larva. Uh, so what El Nana does is it sniffs out the particular distress calls of the plant that is being chewed on by larva that are hijacked by these particular, these other two particular wasps. That's right, because now that chemical uh, signal has been changed yet yes, again because, because the saliva of the larva. is different in, uh, inside the caterpillar that has been hijacked. So the signal that is going out from the plant is no longer saying, help, I'm under attack from caterpillars. It's saying, help, I'm under attack from a caterpillar that has also been hijacked by a wasp. Right. Yeah. So El Nana comes along and says, well, don't mind if I do. They're here. This daycare center has already been established. Saves me the trouble. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay one of these eggs in every wasp, grub, or pupa I can find. And when they hatch... They're not only going to eat the uh, host caterpillar, they're also going to eat any other um, uh, daycare attendees inside of that organism. It's really brilliant, right? Yeah. Because as you say, the other wasps have done the work. All they have to do is swoop in, deposit, and it's a very successful way of trying to get into that food source easily. Of course, they do have an enemy, these hyperparasites, Yes. these wasps, and that would be another hyperparasitoid. Uh, usually this is other females of the same species, and sometimes a caterpillar may host two, three, maybe even four tiers wow. of parasites within it. It's tough. It's tough being a caterpillar. Uh, and it, But again, this really drives home just what a violent battle royal uh, life on Earth really is. Mm-hmm. It's just any anybody who can will try and get a larva inside of that caterpillar. It's kind of like with the whole uh, the whole uh, like spying thing that came out uh, you know recently where you know talking about uh, the US uh, eavesdropping on phone calls all over the world and people were outraged by it and you know I'm not saying there there's not uh, a certain amount of acceptable outrage but I couldn't help but think well you know this is what countries do countries are kind of awful and spying everybody right uh, hasn't everyone been reading the same books and seeing the same James Bond films that I have over the years they would know that so it's kind of the same thing in the animal world Anybody that can uh, and has the ability to will get in there and steal some energy, steal the opportunity. And wasps are great at this. I mean, there are other species of wasps that will also slip their young into a um, into another wasp nest mm-hmm. and let it uh, grow to maturity there. And then same thing, it'll it'll jump, it'll leapfrog over uh, the other young and then eat them and then emerge from the wasp nest. They're, they're just wonderful, evil creatures. Ah, oh, nature. It's beautiful. It is. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about the zombie ant. All right, we're back. Now, you've heard us talk about cordyceps before. Um, these are the uh, the fungi that we discussed in our zombie outbreak episode. This is one where we, pr- we pretended... We put on a little uh, radio play here mm-hmm. uh, in which Atlanta was uh, was taken over by a zombie outbreak, a zombie apocalypse. And we uh, decided in, in this particular episode that it, we were going to pin the zombie hood on a cordyceps. This is a, a fungus that uh, takes over a creature, uh, generally an insect, 
uh, and well, um, exclusively insects, and it, it takes over their bodies, mm-hmm. turns them essentially into a zombie, and, and hijacks their responses. It well, makes them do something like go to a particular area, climb to the top of a leaf, uh, or or go and uh, and form a mass grave somewhere so that they can continue to grow. Yeah, and it also uh, creates very clumsy movements by yes. that insect because, again, what they're talking about here um, with a cordyceps is this toxin, which is taking over some of the body and, and uh, creating this sort of strange machinations. Now, um, largely, this the zombie ant fungus is a story of ophiocordyceps, this parasitic fungus, and the Campo Natini carpenter ants that mm-hmm. it infects. But, of course, there's another player in here, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we're talking about here is, you know, one day nearing noon, you have this carpenter ant, let's say, in a rainforest in Brazil, uh, veering off course, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's leaving the dry tree canopy, and then it descends into the humid forest floor, and it's staggering over debris and plants. And David Hughes, he's an assistant professor of entomology and biology at Penn State, describes it as a kind of drunkard's walk. Yeah. Okay, again, we're talking about this toxins uh, taking over the brain here, and even convulsions occurring. And then the ants, by the way, who have been dissected at this stage of infection reveal heads already full of these fungal cells. Okay. Then the ant clumsily makes its way to the main vein of a leaf and it chomps down, which is just weird. Uh, ants don't normally do this. They don't chomp onto leaves. Right. But unfortunately here it does this in its mandible lock into place as the ant dies because now uh, what's also happening is that it's beginning to atrophy, like muscles are beginning to atrophy within the ant. And so that means that those mandibles are not going to pry themselves open at all. It's right. locked into place. And the, the death grip is there. And a couple of days later, this ant actually dies. And what happens? The fungus sprouts out of its head and delivers spores down onto the ground. Yeah, and it's... Uh and it's a real killer. It'll, you know, this is the kind of thing that can wipe out an ant colony. The ants, of course, are, are have, have evolved a response to this. Mm-hmm. If they, they see signs of it happening, they kind of a rig- rigorous uh, grooming uh, regime takes place where they're just they're taking extra care of who's who's acting a little funny, who's mm-hmm. acting weird, get them out of there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very dramatic. Uh, thing playing out here. If you if you look at it like this, you you know, I mean, if this happened among our population, um, can you imagine us trying to actually take that person out of the group or the ways in which it would behave? We'd say, why why do you keep wandering into traffic? That's weird behavior, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So as it turns out, as uh, Hughes in a, in a 2012 study um, highlighted, there is a hyperparasite involved here. Uh, it's not just a, a matter of this uh, particular cordyceps wiping out uh, these different ant colonies. Looking at examples of it, and found that some of these colonies uh, actually survived rather well. There were mm-hmm. still a lot of dead bodies, a lot of dead soldiers, a lot of carnage, but they, uh, but in some cases, they had a much better uh, survival rate. And the reason uh, he discovered is a hyperparasitic fungus that effectively castrates the cordyceps fungus. It mm-hmm. re- reduces the viability of its spore-producing organs to 6.5%. Yeah, this is amazing because you have this other fungus that's basically taking notes and stalking the ophiocordyceps. Mm-hmm. And according to Catherine Harmon writing for Nature, Sandra Anderson, a researcher at the University of Copenhagen, they found a different breed of that fungi growing over the ant corpse in the emerging fungus stock. Mm-hmm. And by covering that fungus in the stock, it effectively sort of sterilized it. Yeah. 
that basically the, this uh, hyperparasitic fungus comes in and says, hey, what you got going there? It seems like a pretty good operation. Uh, I just want enough to, to wet my beak. So let me uh, let me take over this particular ant, this particular pile of ants, and, uh, oh, yeah, you're not going to be spreading your franchise anymore because this is my business now. Is that kind of your good guys? Uh, a little bit. It yeah. kind of crept good in. Good fellas. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah it's good. Um, yeah, so it's a good example of how the uh, the waste management guys kind of come in and say, yeah, I like what you're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to look at a five-tier example of hyperparasites in action from Vanderbilt microbiologist Seth Bordenstein, who may sound familiar because uh, we just did an episode on the whole genome, and Bordenstein was very much involved in uh, one of the studies there. Yeah, because he was looking at the Nathonia wasps, which mm-hmm. are featured here as well, and he was looking more at uh, their microbiota, their gut microbes and how they mated. But here he's looking really at what I think of as the turducken of the hyperparasite world. Yeah. Because as you said, this is a five-tier operation going on. Yeah. And it's, and it's again, it's very much an ex- a sort of a, like a like a no country for old men kind of scenario where one guy's got some money, somebody else comes and kills them all and takes the money, and then somebody else is trying to kill him, and everybody's trying to get that, get that commodity, get that energy, get that money. In this case, this is how it goes. First, blowflies infest a bird's underside with blood-sucking larvae. Next, larvae drop off. They fall to prey to parasitic wasps. Then these wasps carry a parasitic bacterium called Wolbachia, uh, which uh, has evolved to modify its host reproductive system. And then the bacteria, in turn, are subject to their own invasion from a tiny virus known as bacteriophages, which hijack Wolbachia's cellular machinery to expand their own population. Okay. Bird, blowfly, mm-hmm. wasp, Wolbachia. And then the bacteriophage. Yeah, the virus. So it's like it just, yeah. You can see how it gets smaller as it, as, as it goes down, right? Yeah. As we go down that list. Yeah, and the, the Wolbachia is really interesting on its own right because it, it hijacks the wasp immune system. And uh, it's still being studied, but, the, but it all breaks down along these lines, all right? It, it kills infected males. It feminizes infected males as they develop as females or infertile pseudo-females. Uh, it induces uh, parthenogenesis, uh, the reproduction of infected females without males. And it makes the sperm of uninfected males incompatible with the eggs of uninfected females or females infected with a different Wolbachia strain. Yeah, Wolbachia is serious stuff. We talked about it in River Blindness, our episode on that. Mm-hmm. And in humans, I thought this was fascinating. Um, nematodes, that, that well, when humans contract these nematodes, the nematodes actually contain the Wolbachia bacteria. And they have something called neutrophils. And these are specialized white blood cells that are unable to attach to the worm itself. But it forms a ring around the bacteria and attacks it. So then you have something called eosinophils, which is basically like a cleanup crew that would come in, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you had this this nematode, and it can't get to the worm because these neutrophils are, are essentially cloaking it. I mean, it has, mm-hmm. I think that's a fascinating sort of power that this has, this Wolbachia, because then it's modulating the host's immune system response. It's just sitting there in the body undetected, at least in humans. Yeah, and Bordenstein's really interested in Wolbachia because he, he believes that one day we might be able to add some genes uh, to the Wolbachia and use it to control insects that vector human de- diseases like uh, malaria and dengue fever. Yeah, and this is really important because it really is one of the most successful parasites in the animal kingdom, um, and it evolved 100 million years ago. So this is a pretty significant presence. So you're probably thinking, that's it, right? 
it can't get any nuttier than this. Yeah, we surely we've reached the the tiniest Russian doll in this uh, this parasitic uh, relationship. Oh no, because there's one single parasitic gene that exists out there. We're talking about transposon. Yes, uh, transposable elements TE or retrotransposons. It's a, a DNA sequence that can change its position within the genome, sometimes creating or reversing mutations and altering the cell's genome size. Yet they have been, these transposons have been discovered inside viruses that infect other viruses, which in turn affect amoebas that infect human beings. And Bordenstein says, I think it's difficult to see where one organism begins and another one ends. We are only beginning to appreciate how intertwined these layers of organisms are in large flora and fauna. Which again, we come back to that whole, um, hologenome sort of question. Yeah. Like where, what is, what is the, the, the barrier between one organism and the, and the next? To what extent are all Organisms, as we think, but all individuals really just uh, a ship with a crew. Right. Yeah. You've got your mitochondrial DNA. You've got mm-hmm. genes. You've got bacteria. You've got epigenetics going on. Just conglomerates of organisms uh, just walking about and going about their business and then trying to consume other organisms in the process. Makes me feel like I'm dripping like some sort of genetic material off of me. Or Actually, I am yeah. dripping little microbes off of myself right now. Yeah. I mean, really, this whole episode should drive home the fact that we're all kind of gross. We're called these big piles of bacteria. And then the, the whole world is just this nasty battle royal of parasites uh, engaging with each other. Uh, parasites and predators and then prey. Actually, it makes you feel a little bit good about the human species sometimes. I mean, just a little, right? Yeah, because yeah. to, to a certain extent, we kind of rise above that or at least tell ourselves that we've risen above it. Yeah, all right. Uh, why don't you uh, take us on out, Robert Lamb? I think you've right. got something for us. Yeah, this is just a little bit from Victorian mathematician August de Morgan, which uh, ties in nicely with today's topic. He said, Great fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them, and little fleas have lesser fleas, and so ad infinitum. And the great fleas themselves, in turn, have greater fleas to go on, while these, again, have greater still and greater still to go on. Here you go. So there you have it. Parasites, hyperparasites, hot parasite on parasite action, as promised. <laughs> Have something you'd like to throw in on this? Another example of hyperparasites in action, or just your general response to this uh, this view of the world as this uh, violent battle royal of uh, criminal elements? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us in all the usual places. The mothership is stuff to blow your mind. We're also on Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus. Uh, we're Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. And Julie, if they want to send us an old-fashioned email, how might they go about it? Well, it's really quite easy, Robert. All you have to do is send an email to blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 